0: I you to turn with me in your Bible to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, I draw your attention, please, to verses 20 and 21. Genesis three twenty and 21. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your infinite wisdom and we thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your love. And Father, we see your infinite wisdom on display in the pages of Scripture that though man rebels against you, yet you move forward in unfolding and revealing to mankind the many-faceted nature of the gem of your salvation. We thank you, Father, for how you have lovingly planned for and cared for mankind who is willing to turn to you in repentance and faith and find salvation. And we pray that thy spirit would guide us in our understanding of your word this morning. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Very often when we want to understand something, we want to understand it well, it's good to go back to the beginning. And that's what Genesis means. Genesis is the book of beginnings, and we find, especially in the first 11 chapters, where God reveals to us all kinds of things about the world in which we live that we do not understand from that world itself. Now, there's a lot of things we can learn from creation, whether we're studying plants or studying the oceans, whether we're studying uh, the stars and the planets and the sun, whether we're studying the human body or uh, all the laws of physics upon which this universe operates, physical sciences like chemistry and and uh, things like that. We can learn so much from all of those studies, but there are lots of things that we will not get an answer to and understand. But God has provided the answers for us in his word, the Bible. The word of God is the truth that God has given to us that we might know and understand. And so on these 11 chapters in the Book of Beginnings, we find answers to lots of questions, which I might add, our present culture having set aside, not believing that the Bible is God's word, but choosing to exclude it from their thinking, is left with lots of questions with no solid answers. That's not the case for the child of God. The believer has answers, and, and we can't necessarily prove We can just point to and say, because God said so. This is what God said. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you a life built on the truth of the Bible and God's word is a life that has a lot more stability to it than people who are just leaning upon science and all kinds of things. There's a lot of stability that can come from that, but there's all kinds of foundational stability that it cannot provide such is the case here in Genesis chapter 3, where I've asked you to turn. In this chapter, uh, which is a chapter that I might say is a very sad chapter in human history. Genesis chapter 3 provides with us a very, very tremendous sad chapter in human history, and yet we find in this chapter tremendous elements of hope, hope in the midst of all this sadness. And this hope I want you to see this morning Points to a loving God who is good to all. The hope that God provides gives an opportunity for all to experience the blessings of God, and it demonstrates that God is good, and He's extending His goodness to whosoever. That's the word Jesus used, whosoever. Are you a whosoever? Christ died for you. Notice here in verses 20 and 21, we have Adam and Eve, we have our first parents. God created Adam. Out of the dust of the ground, we find that out in chapter 2. And then God put Adam to sleep, took a rib, according to chapter 2, and and he formed the first woman, Eve. Jesus pointed back to these chapters, by the way. Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 19, from the beginning, it was not so. And Jesus was talking about the subject of divorce, and when he wanted to address that subject, he went back to the beginning. (laughs) And he quoted from the book of Genesis, chapter 1 and chapter 2. He quoted from a lot of the Old Testament. On this occasion, quoting from these passages, our first parents, the first created beings, uh, Adam and Eve, that is human beings, Adam and Eve that God created. And I want you to notice here in verse 20 that Adam called his wife's name Eve. Eve. Now, that's not the name that we're told in chapter 2 that he gave her to at first. Look at chapter 2. Just turn back a page if you have to. You might not have to in your Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, uh, when God created Eve, and he uh, tells us about that in verse 21 and 22, and then he brought her to Adam for the first time, notice in verse 23, Adam's response was this. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man and uh, the word woman here means the opposite of a man it means a wife that's the idea of the word woman and so jesus said in matthew chapter 19 In the beginning, God created them male and female. Now you find that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. You don't have to turn there right now. But God made them male and female. That's the way God made us. And so it's no surprise that that's what the science bears up, that there are two sexes, a man and a woman, male and female. And Adam first, according to chapter 2, verse 23, called uh, his wife woman. That's what she was, his wife. God brought her to him, one man, one woman. The first time we have the word mother comes up right here in this passage in verse 24. The passage we're looking at is the second time the word comes up, and it's a commentary. Verse 24, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. That's the idea in woman, different word, but the same idea, and they shall become one flesh. The one flesh relationship between a husband, and a wife. But now coming back to chapter 3, verse 20, it's after the entrance of sin. Remember I said that Genesis chapter 3 is a very sad chapter in human history. It's not the only sad chapter, but it's the first one, the first sad chapter in human history. And uh, and it's after the conclusion that Adam now calls his wife's name Eve because She was the mother of all living. And what I want us to see this morning is this, uh, calling his wife Eve, was a great statement of faith. And giving her the name Eve was because she was the mother of all living. The word living at the very end of the verse is a play on words with Eve's name. They're just very little bit different. Eve means life. And living means someone who gives life or some variation of that. The Hebrew is a little bit tricky, but it's very picturesque. And clearly there's a play on words between these two related and similar words, Eve and living. Now we'll build towards that. First of all, please note that in Genesis chapter 3, we are introduced to the first enemy that humanity has ever had. It's in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3. You know it well. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The New Testament is very clear who this serpent was. It was none other than Satan himself, an angelic being, a a being that was created perfect. In perfection of tremendous beauty and power, God created Lucifer as to be the highest of his angels. And uh, in pride, we're told in Isaiah chapter 14, that he fell, wanting to be like God himself, something that's impossible. But he comes to God's creation there on the earth, mankind, all the animals and the plants. God created a very special place, the Garden of Eden, where man could dwell and enjoy all the blessings that God created mankind in perfection. Adam and Eve were created without sin, perfect, and, and and they were untested. That comes up in this chapter, but they were created perfect and good. God saw everything that he created, and his comment was, it was very good. Uh, and that was the case, that was the state of creation. Perfect, beautiful, holy, untested, but holy. And uh, But we have our very first enemy, this fallen angelic being, comes in the serpent. And notice, he first of all comes to the woman. See that? Verse 1, he came and said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? So immediately the serpent, Satan, is questioning the word of God. May I say to you this morning, that's a very dangerous thing to do, (laughs) to question the word of God. We see the results of it here because Satan, and it's important to understand how he operates. Satan was a liar. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus said that Satan is a liar. He said he's the father of it, the father of lies. And a good liar, I don't know that there's such a thing as a good liar, somebody who's proficient at telling lies because that's an oxymoron, twists the truth. They don't take something completely fabricated that has no basis in any truth at all. No one will believe that. No, they take the truth and they twist it. And that's what Satan did here with Eve. He twisted the truth, saying that uh, when she responded to that, here's what God said undoubtedly, she heard that from Adam. He conveyed it to her You shall not eat of it, you shall not touch it, lest you die. Uh, I don't know where that statement came from. You shall not touch it, but this was her response. The Satan continues and now flatly denies what God's word says. Verse 4, you will not surely die. Well, that was a lie. God had already told Adam that the judgment upon sin would be death. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The Hebrew is very picturesque. In dying, you will die. And Genesis chapter 5 bears out the truth of what God said. Because so-and-so lived, had children, lived to such an age, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died. And it's still happening today. We die, we die, because God's word is true, because God is true. Science can't answer where life comes from. They try, but they can't answer it. And they can't answer death. Why we die? They come up with ideas. They come up with all kinds of descriptions. But God tells us where it came from. And we'll get back to that in a moment. But please notice now that Eve, uh, the woman, verse 6, she looked and was tempted when she saw that the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All three here in Genesis 3. She took of the fruit and ate. Now, notice this last sentence at the end of verse 6. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. The New Testament is very clear in 1 Timothy 3.14 that Adam was not deceived. Eve was, but Adam was not. Adam made a definite decision to sin with his wife in rebellion against God. Tragic, very tragic tragedy indeed. And so we are introduced to... Our first enemy. Now, he's not our only enemy, but he's the first one. But because of Satan and because mankind and Adam and Eve listened to him and disobeyed God, two more enemies arose, giving us three enemies. The second is the flesh or our own sin nature. Once they ate of that fruit, they now, that holiness and their creation was lost And they had rebelled against God, eaten of this fruit, and they now knew. This is evidence from the text, because when God came to them in the cool of the day, they hid among the trees. Even before God came in the cool of the day, they now recognized that they were naked. They hadn't recognized this before. They had no thoughts of anything like that. But now, sinful thoughts, the presence of the flesh, or the carnal desires of the flesh, sin. And I'm not in any way saying that the husband-one-flesh relationship is carnal or sinful. That we saw in chapter 2 before the presence of sin was God-blessed and holy. The two shall become one flesh. Don't confuse my words by something someone else says. But the presence of distorting that, in other words, lust instead of love. It was possible. It is possible for a husband and wife to look at each other and to lust Now, there's all kinds of other sins, too. Adultery, fornication, sodomy. There's all kinds of other sins, too. But even within a marriage, it can be a look for the desire for me instead of love, which says for you. There's a big difference. If you misunderstand that, you can ask me that. I'm not doing that today. But pointing out that they were ashamed because they were naked. They never thought that before, the entrance of sin. The second enemy they had was their own sinful flesh. And then a third enemy arose in time. Because as we'll see as they had children, and as we've learned from our study in Second Peter chapter 1, the corruption that is in the world, once we have a world of people, it's full of corruption through lust, the sinful desires of people who are in the world, and Satan being number one. And so we have three great enemies, Satan, the flesh, and the world. Now we're also introduced in this chapter to the curse Notice that when God came, as I said in verse 8 of this chapter, in the cool of the day, they heard God and uh, they hid themselves, as I said, verse 8. Notice God is gracious and he's calling out to them. And God asks them a question, where are you? Adam, where are you? Eve, where are you? I've shared this in my class in the Gospel of John, but it's worth repeating here. Anytime God asks a question... God's asking the question not to know the information. Now, as parents, when we ask a question, uh, very often it's because we don't know. Scientists ask questions, it's because they don't know, and they're trying to find the answer. That's never the case with God. God knows all things. He knows where Adam and Eve are. He knows what they've done. This will be very evidenced in the text because God's going to make a marvelous provision. He's prepared for their rebellion against him. God knows all things. Whenever God asks a question, It's to draw the person out. That's what God does. God asks questions in the Bible to draw the person out, give the person an opportunity to open up their heart so they can see it in the light of who God is and his truth. It's a blessed thing. Where are you, Adam? Where are you? And Adam has no choice. He can't hide from God. God knows exactly where he is. And so Adam responds, I heard your voice, and I was afraid. Why? Why? Because I was naked and I hid myself. And so the Lord then goes down the line. We see Adam now demonstrates this second enemy of the soul, the flesh. Remember I said the second enemy was the flesh? When God says, who told you you were naked? The first question God asks is, have you eaten? I should say the second question. It's the third if you count where are you. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded that you should not eat? Adam should have responded and said, Yes, Lord. That's what confession is, by the way. Confession is when you admit what you did. He should have said, Yes, Lord, I disobeyed you. But interestingly enough, that is not what we see in verse 12. Adam's response is, The woman you gave me. This is all your fault, God. And as if it's not enough, it's her fault. It's anybody's fault but my fault. There's our second enemy, the sinful desires of our heart. What was Adam's sinful desire? Pride. He didn't want to own up to what he did, he didn't want to take responsibility and the consequences for what he did. You gave me this woman. And it's easy to point to some truthful things and present it in a bad light in our own sinful pride, isn't it? She's the one who is deceived. But guess who chose to eat with her? Adam did. But he didn't say that. This woman you gave me. Now the Lord moves his attention on. We see in verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Another question to draw her out. And so she stands up and said, Lord, I ate of the fruit. No, she didn't do that. She does the same sinful thing that Adam did. The serpent. (laughs) It's always somebody you can find, right? I can blame somebody, someone, something because in our sinful heart we don't want to stand up and honestly admit what we've done. In other words, we don't want to confess our sin. She blames the serpent and so the Lord God turns to the serpent and now we are introduced to the curse and we are introduced to God's judgment death. First of all, God works in reverse order. God started with Adam who blamed Eve and Eve God turns to her, blames the serpent. So God turns to the serpent, who is truly the first source of the evil in this chapter, the evil one, Satan himself. God begins with him first and is going to deal with not just him, but all three. And so starting with the serpent, God says, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle. Please notice the word cursed and please notice the word all. Did you see that? You are cursed more than all cattle. What? Cattle. Isn't this interesting? God is going to curse all his creation and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you you shall eat dust all the days of your life. But now watch this, verse 15. And I will put enmity, that is a striving between, a fight. I will put enmity, opposing ones, adversaries, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there'll be a bruising of the heel, which is in the Hebrew, the lowest part, the latter part, the least part, down at the bottom, the foot. And then there's the bruising of the head. That's the chief. That's the foremost. That's the first part. And so there'll be a crushing blow that will be delivered to the head. And that will be delivered by the heel, <laughs> who will be bruised by the heel. Uh, and, that, and that's the, the adversary, the enemy that's going to go on between what? The seed of the woman. Do you remember I said to you earlier that when, in verse 20, when Adam called his wife Eve, the mother of all living, it was a statement of faith? We'll come back to that. Hang on to this statement in verse 15. The seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. Now, notice the curse Goes on because God now draws his attention to Eve and talks about how God's going to greatly multiply her sorrow and her what? Conception, your conception. And that's the way, the change to be a painful bearing of children. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. According to the New Testament, this is not the first time that there was an order of headship. It's not the first time. According to the New Testament, the apostle Paul addresses the fact that God created Adam first and then he created Eve, second. We see already saw that in chapter 2. I mentioned it. And that creates the order. But this order that God created is now going to have a big problem. And the problem is the sin nature. I believe what is spoken of here in chapter 4 bears it out when God is speaking to Cain about his brother Abel because the same wording is used about sin in chapter 4, lying at the door. God said, sin, Cain, is going to be lying at the door and you shall rule over it, meaning you're going to have to master it. Now this blessed relationship between the husband and the wife is going to be affected by the sinful desire of the husband and the sinful desire of the wife. And the wife is going to be tempted to desire for her husband, not in a pleasurable way, but in that position that he has that God gave to him. that's borne up in Genesis chapter 4 and clearly explained in Ephesians chapter 5. Come to my marital class. I'll give it to anybody, whether you're married or not. You can come. We go through it in greater detail. But God says he shall rule over you. That is, God establishes that rule that it's rightful. There's going to be a head. And that's important, by the way, in a husband-wife relationship. Someone has to lead. You can think of an illustration. If two people are riding on a horse, someone has to be in the front and someone has to be in the back. Now, our culture likes to distort that and say the person in the back is inferior. You know, some people don't mind. They enjoy the back seat. No, the point, though, is someone has to be at the head, Leading, guiding. Which way is the horse going to turn? Here's the two, husband and wife. They're on the horse. They're galloping across the wild plains of beautiful America. You got my picture? And, uh, and they're coming up to the Grand Canyon. And the, jump's not go- the horse is not going to jump the Grand Canyon. They're going to have to go left or they're going to have to go right. Do you ever face any decisions in life? Sure, we face decisions. Which way are you going to go? Now, in a loving relationship, the person in the back who's going to be whispering in the ear going, and the person in the front can turn around and say, why? <laughs> <laughs> then the person in the back can whisper and tell you why. You see? Or the person in the front can just choose on their own. But the blessedness is when you have the two who become one, there's a tremendous resource. But someone has to hold the reins and actually make the decision. Someone has to decide. And as soon as those reins are influenced, the decision is made. And God has given for the husband to be in that role and the wife to be his helpmeet in the creation, not in the fall, in the creation to be a helper comparable to him, to be a tremendous help and a blessing to him. Foolish is the husband who doesn't consult his wife. You've just left out half of what God's given to you to help. It's a beautiful picture of a team working together, but someone has to lead and there's now, with the entrance of sin, the potential for there to be rivalry between the husband wife relationship. But God wants to save them from that. And that's what I believe this statement is referring to. Notice now, God turns his attention in verse 17 to Adam. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife. And and the implication is in disobeying God. You disobeyed the voice of the Lord, thou shalt not. You listened to the voice of your wife and disobeyed the voice of the Lord. Because of that, notice please, God says... Uh, uh, you." I've got to read the whole verse. Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. So first we had the cattle. Now we have the ground. And God explains that in toil, as sweat. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to you. And notice this. You shall eat the herb of the field. Uh, They were herbivores, right there from the scripture. But what I want you to note is not that so much. That is the case. It changes in Genesis 9. But what I want you to notice is if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, in verse 16, it's a change, a tremendous change in the curse. In chapter 2, verse 16, before the entrance of sin, notice the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Mankind, in his perfection and creation, had free reign of all the blessings of the Garden of Eden. But now in the curse, that's all changed. And we're going to see at the end of this chapter that Adam and his wife will be thrust out of Eden. No more the blessings of Eden, but now the toil and the work of farming and, and tilling the ground so that man can bring forth the food that he needs. Verse 19, And the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Notice, please, now, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. You may have wondered where those words are. There they are, right there in Genesis chapter 3. That's death. We're introduced to curse, the curse, and the death. And uh, the death, which is the curse of sin is God's provision of hope. Why? Well, now we have Adam and Eve are going to have children. We're going to get back to our verse. Eve, the mother of all living, they're going to have children. And in having children, they only have one thing they can give to their children. It's the only thing they have to give. It's a sin nature. They're sinners, and every child they have is going to be a sinner. And by the way, the whole of scriptures bears up that truth, the whole of scriptures. And, and, and they're sinners, but God cursed the creation and cursed man with death for his sin because God offers hope. Hope. What's that hope? The hope was back in verse 15. God was going to send his own son to be a man. The son of God would become the son of man and he would die on the cross. Death. He died. That's the curse upon for sin. The wages of sin is death. Because he was going to rise from the dead and bring forth life. And by the way, God also promises a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. And so all this curse is because God has something better in store. And it's not this world we're living in. It's the one to come. And the only way to find it is through the one who came into this world and never sinned, Jesus Christ the righteous one, God who willingly took the curse and died on the cross and gave his blood and his life to save us from our sins and then rose again in life. Jesus Christ arose from the dead and now anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ can be born again and receive new life. Now, with that understanding, I want you to come back to verse 20. Adam called his wife's name Eve. Life. He called her name Eve. Why? Because she was the mother of all what? Living. She's going to have children. God said so in the curse, didn't he? Yes, God said so. He, when he cursed the serpent, he talked about the seed of the woman. And when he brought forth a curse upon the wife, uh, Eve, God said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. Why? Why? because in pain you will bring forth children. This is a statement in verse 20 of Adam, of faith, especially in verse 15. God is going to provide a deliverance from all this mess that I created, and it's going to come through how? Through a child that's going to be born to the woman. Now, Adam did not understand everything I explained to you about the gospel earlier, Jesus Christ. He didn't know any of that. But here's what he did know, and here's what he did believe. He believed that God was going to provide a deliverance. And the deliverance was going to come from a child born to the woman. And so that's why Adam says he called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. We read in the New Testament scriptures, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Did you get it? Isn't that precious? Adam didn't understand it all, but he believed God that God was going to provide a deliverance. And oh, has God provided deliverance. He has provided a redeemer, a redeemer who was born of a woman. Aren't you thankful for motherhood? Are you thankful for your mother? I am. Life is a gift. It's a precious gift. Life is very, very special. As a matter of fact, I might, ooh, I might have left myself a couple minutes to talk about the sanctity of life. I may have given myself a moment to do that. Life is holy. Do you know our culture today in America is torn over understanding when does life begin and, and understanding when life begins and whether or not mankind has the right to terminate life of his own choosing. You may think I'm only talking about abortion. I certainly am. But I'm talking about more than abortion because we now think it's medically merciful to end a life that's suffering. Do you know both of those and anything in between other than capital punishment that God prescribes upon murderers, anything else is disregarding the sanctity of life. What is life? What is life? It's a good question. Uh, actually, life is difficult for us to comprehend unless you look in the book of beginnings. Turn back to chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2 in verse 7, God tells us about the creation of Adam. I mentioned that. The Lord God formed man, Adam, out of the dust of the ground. Remember, God said when he cursed him, he said, of dust you came, to dust you shall return. That's death. God formed him out of the dust of the ground. By the way, science can verify that. Science can verify when they look at our tissue, whether it's our skin, our sinews. Nobody uses that word anymore. You know what a sinew is? That's your muscles. Look at any of it, your blood, your skeleton, the bones in your body. You look at all of our makeup of our physical body, and they can point to the same elements that the rest of the creation is made out of. I mean, uh, the, 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 the flesh of a fish is very different than the flesh of a man, and yet there are similarities when you look at the components Why? God formed them out of the same creation. God formed man out of the dust of the ground. And when man dies, people die. We go back to, our bodies decompose, and we decay. Science can verify that, but it can't touch this next statement in verse 7. After God formed, God forming the body of Adam, man out of the dust of the ground, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. It wasn't until God... Gave life to man. Now that's interesting to me because the word of God tells us that God is living. And that's a part of understanding the sanctity of life. Why is life holy? Why is it imperative that we get this right when is a child alive? And if you don't think this isn't significant, we now have politicians who are deciding that after a child is born, you may still have the right to decide whether or not they live. If you don't think one step leads to another, you are missing the boat. It does. Because the question really isn't when, that's the front. That's the front. Because one thing leads to another. We're, and they've even decided how they're going to Some people have asked, in genuine honesty, how are you going to decide what's going to happen, I would say, to that lovely life, a child that's been born. Well, we're going to put it and take care of it for so many hours and give the, the couple, the mom and the dad, the time to decide whether they're going to keep it or not. What a gross wickedness. This is what our politicians are. Some of them, not all of them, praise the Lord. This is what some of our politicians are trying to argue over and fight over. So when does this new being become a living person? I would tell you at the moment of conception. Based on this, by the way. God formed Adam's body out of the dust of the ground, but it wasn't until he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life that he became a living soul, a living being. Science can't tell you. They can't reproduce life. Life comes from God. God is the living God. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses was in the wilderness, he saw a burning bush. And when he said, I will step aside to see this great sight, a bush that's on fire and is not consumed, God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. And when Moses asked him his name, this is what God said, I am who I am. I am. That's my name. I am. By the way, we get the name Jehovah. Some call it Yahweh however you want to pronounce it. We're not really sure. Jehovah is the one I use. I'm familiar with the old English. Is the ever living one. Always present. Always alive. That's why you read in the scriptures that God is the living God. Jeremiah 10.10 But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. Life is a gift from God. And I would submit to you, science cannot examine your soul. They can't. They can't find it. They can't test it. They don't have any microscope. or They don't even have an electronic microscope. They don't even have a test. They, they try weighing bodies when they die. Is there a difference in weight before? No. Now, that weight continues to change after death. Why? God tells us, to the dust of the ground, you decompose and decay. But the soul is immaterial, just like God is immaterial. And life is a gift that God has given to us, living Science can describe it, by the way. They'll describe, you look up any good medical book and they'll describe life for you. Breathing, eating, doing things, thinking. These are all things that don't tell you what life is. It tells you what life does. That's what we do. But what's that life? It's a gift because God created us in his image. He gave us the vitality of life itself. God gave you a soul. And by the way... God doesn't create each individual person the way he created Adam and Eve. God determined, as we saw, through procreation. When a husband and wife come together in one flesh, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother. The two shall become one flesh, a mother and a father. And when God blesses, they have children. That children is alive, I believe, at the moment of conception because procreation is the means by which God gave to continue life. Are you here this morning? I like to ask tough questions sometimes. Are you here? If you're here, if you can hear my voice, you were conceived. And that's when you became life. That's what I believe from the scriptures, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. By the way, notice, please, it also helps us to understand what death is, too. When Adam's soul that God created was united together with his body, he was alive. Now, in Genesis chapter 5, you'll find out he dies. What happened when Adam died? What happens with everybody who dies? Solomon told us in the book of Ecclesiastes. The body goes into the ground, as God said it would. It decomposes dust to dust. But the spirit goes to meet its maker. There is life after this life. Because your life doesn't end just because you depart from this present world, this physical world. You go stand before God one day who will judge us. Wow. Because God gave you that life. You will always exist. By the way, you may say, oh, I don't believe that science. Doesn't. The Bible says so, and if you search your heart, you know it's true. You know what? Let me just give you one little beautiful example. It's a wonderful thing when people talk about their inner child. Now, I know what psychology means when they say that, but I'm not going to talk about that. People talk about the fact that you're always feeling some particular age. You know that? You may be 154 and yet, except for your body. Now, I know if you make it to 154, your body won't feel like you're 35, but your mind will. Your inner soul, who you are. I know that your mind goes through struggles as you get older, too, and you don't remember like you used to, but you're still you. You won't change. You still like the same colors? Yeah. I mean, I know those things change as we go through life, but it's still you because God made you, and you will go on. That's why God sent his son to save you, because he wants you to go on forever with him. Death is the separation of the soul from the body. When a body dies and the soul goes to meet its maker, it will one day stand before him as judge. Where did that life come? It came from God. And God gave that life to man, Genesis 2, 7. And I believe we all receive it when we're procreated. But I want you to know one more thing when we talk about the sanctity of life. And that's what you need to know that God is sovereign over life. If God's the creator, that means he's sovereign over all. First of all, he demonstrates it in his power. He gave you that life. Just like he gave life to animals. He gave you life, but he created you different. God made people, not animals. He made people in his image. In the image of man, uh, God, created he man and female, male and female. Genesis 1. And so God is sovereign over life. Listen to what Job writes in Job chapter 12. But now ask the beasts, and they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, and the fish of the sea will explain to you. Who among all these things does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In other words, if you look at creation, you can come away with one thing. Job did. There's a creator out there, and he's really amazing. I'll give you a little piece. I told my wife I was going to do this. We got the privilege of walking home last night from our walk to this gorgeous sunset. I don't know if anybody saw the sunset last night where we saw it from. It was spectacular. The sky was on fire, and the fire just continued and receded. The clouds got purples and pinks and oranges, and it just was amazing. And I I don't know why. I have weird thoughts. (laughs) I thought to myself of a painter. I saw the sunset like a painting. And a magnificent painting. First thing I wondered was you know, when a painter paints, you know what they have to get? One of the first things. I'm not a painter, so I don't know what the first thing they, I know who I would ask, but I know one of the things they have to get is a canvas, right? You need a canvas to paint on. How big a canvas are you going to get? I don't know, isn't that interesting? Every painter, I guess, gets a different size canvas. You can get one like this, you can get one like this, right? Somebody did one on Mount Rushmore. That's a good-sized canvas. That was a sculpture. Yeah, wow. What's God's canvas like that he uses? It was the whole sky as far as I could look left and right. What a magnificent canvas. Because we have a magnificent God. I wonder, I should ask an artist, I wonder if the artist can come up with as many colors as God did last night All the colors in God's palette. And then they changed. It continued to change and change and change. It was like it was a new canvas every two or three minutes. Wow. Ask the birds. Look at the earth. Look at the planets. Look at the sky. Ask the fish. They'll tell you. What will they tell you? Job says they'll tell you. This is what I've learned from creation. The hand of the Lord has done this. He's an awesome God. But Job went on to say something else that he learned, I believe, from God. What's that? Here it is. Job chapter 12, verse 10. In whose hand, that's God's, is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Do you know that God is sovereign over life? Yeah, Job Chapter 12, verse 10. Paul re-echoed this in Acts chapter 17. He was preaching there in Athens, and he said, For in him, in God, we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Even pagan people understood that the gods are responsible for this life we have. It's just the creation can't explain it. No, God is responsible. The Lord is responsible for this life you have. And guess what? Your life is in God's hands. And it's a good place to have your life in the hands of God. But see, because God is life and he's given to us life and he's sovereign over all his creation, because God is holy, that means life is holy. We got it from him. We were created in the image of God. Life is holy. It's not for us in our whims to decide who dies, who doesn't die, and when they die and when they shouldn't die. This is something we stand back and recognize the sovereignty of a holy God. The life that he gives is holy. It. I'll just leave you with this, not the end of the message, but from this little consideration. Your life is the most precious thing you have. Be very careful with it. And I tell you, if you posit your heart and give it to God, he'll give you more back than you could ever imagine. He sent his son to prove it, who died to save us from our sins. We need to recognize that in our nation, that life is holy. And we need to be very, very careful because God in heaven is looking down and watching what we are doing. What I want to sum up this morning to tell you is, do you know that having a mother is a gift from God? If that life you have is a precious possession, then having a mother, and this would be true of fathers too. I don't want to be. (laughs) They're a gift from God because God used them to bring you forth into this world. And God loved us so much he gave us mothers. And it's not just your biological mother. Do you know the word of God speaks about women who act as mothers even though they didn't have children or were not the mother of that child? Do you know the apostle Paul in Romans 16, 13 referred to Rufus, a good, dear friend of his? And he said, he wrote to Rufus and he said, to your mother and mine. Paul took Rufus's mother and said, she's my mother too. You know, I don't know why, but I have a good clue why. I think she was just very mothering. (laughs) And Paul was blessed by the ministry of this woman in his life. God created females, didn't he? Created them in a very special and a very unique way. To have a mother's heart, to have a kind and a loving heart. They can be very emotional. I know, men. I know. But they're a blessing from the Lord. That's why God says to husbands, love your wives. And while God tells us as children, obey our parents, obey your mother, you heard it here, obey your mother. Ephesians chapter 6. Love her too. She's a gift from God to you. Any woman in your life that God has blessed you with, whether it's a sister, whether it's a mother, whether it's an aunt, whether it's a grandmother, some of us have been raised by our grandparents. In the bulletin I put on the second page about Lois and Eunice, right? They're women. And God has blessed us. And we want to honor him as we're thankful. I hope we're thankful. And no greater relationship can you have than that spiritual one. Jesus demonstrated this. We'll close with this. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. There's not just physical relationships of mother, father, children, aunts, uncles, cousins. We have spiritual relationships And within the realm of those spiritual relationships, the Lord Jesus Christ tapped this terminology to express to us the importance of being a child of God and having, yes, a spiritual relationship with one another of the same nature, but oh, so much greater. Notice in Matthew chapter 12 in verse 48. In verse 47, just to set the context, one said to him, Jesus, they were talking to Jesus, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. Now, Jesus' earthly mother was Mary. This is Mary. And James and Judas and there were some other brothers too. They're standing outside and they want to talk to Jesus. Tell Jesus to come out here. We need to speak with him. I want you to notice how Jesus responded to this. Jesus answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Have you ever had to ask that question? You might not even know your mother. There are some people like that in this world. That doesn't mean you're not blessed. Are you here and are you alive and wondering who is your mother? You're blessed. God gave you life through your mother and father. Wow! But watch what Jesus goes on to say. He stretched out his hand towards his disciples and he said, Here are my mothers, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Wow! A spiritual family, a spiritual relationship. And how do you enter into that? Through faith in Jesus Christ, whom God gave to us to deliver us from our sin. And then we have this wonderful family of God. Are you a part of the family of God? It's a blessing to not only have life, but to have everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ. It can be yours. You can have that. Jesus Christ died and rose again to offer you eternal life. And if you receive it in faith through Jesus Christ, repenting of your sin, you will be a part of a blessed family. And oh, the love that we can express and experience in the family of God. But I have to stop. Let's look to God in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for helping us to understand these things from your word so that we might know, that we might understand. I pray, Lord, that we would be those who would confess our sin and stand and own up to who we are full of sin and receive your gift of salvation and deliverance from the penalty of sin. We enjoy the life that we experience here, and you want us to know the eternal life that you will give to the one who believes in Jesus Christ. We thank you for all the women that you've placed in our life, Father. We thank you for our aunts. We thank you for our daughters. We thank you for our sisters. We thank you for our mothers and grandmothers, and so it goes on. But even more so, Father, we thank you for the family of God. We thank you for those women who have trusted in Jesus Christ that you have brought into our lives, that we might nurture one another in our spiritual growth and relationship with you. We give our thanks to you in Jesus' name. Amen.